0: Good morning and welcome to Tuesday morning, November the 28th in 2023 on When I Rise. Today we continue year B, the first Sunday of Advent, and on the Tuesday of the week, I'd like to take a look at the psalm passage, which comes to us from this week from the Revised Common Lectionary and this week of the church's calendar year. So we find ourselves in Psalm 80. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 and then verses 17 through 19. And as you can see in the title script of Psalm 80, it's to the tune of the lilies. I have no idea that originally sounded like so there's gonna be different background music for the reading to try to imagine what the song into the tune of lilies is so let me read that passage we've got a couple points for reflection and then we'll spend our time praying along with the theme that we find there thanks for making us part of your morning on when our eyes let's allow our souls to rise and meet god together in a time of prayer Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 17 through 19. Hear us, Shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty? your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowl full. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you, Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. This is the word of God for us. Well, I hope that you like that change of pace and tune. It's kind of—it's kind of nice, right? But one of the things that's kind of decentering is if the. Tune of the Covenant of the Lilies, as some titles say, something upbeat beat like that. It's kind of hard when it's mixed with some of these hard words that we have in Psalm 80. Um, scholarship suggests that uh, this was a psalm written at the seam of transition, where like the northern kingdom, which if you need to know the backstory of that, just go uh, a generation or two after Solomon in the, the books of the Kings, and you'll find that uh, the kingdom of Israel split in two. Uh, one followed one a descendant of David, and one followed the other. And so you have like the the 10 northern tribes that became collectively Israel, and then Judah became the southern kingdom. And so those are interchangeable throughout the rest of the Old Testament story. But we do know that uh, the Assyrians came and conquered and basically smashed the smithereens the northern kingdom, uh, carried their people off into exile uh, for them never to be reunited again. Uh, and then later about a century and a half later the babylonians came to the southern kingdom and if you recall in the old testament history the plan was for after they smashed the northern kingdoms was to bear down on jerusalem and god spared them and so there seems to be twin issues there's a calamity happening in the northern kingdom and there's calamity happening in the southern kingdom and so this psalm is a bit of a lament uh, commenting on both of those and once again kind of like what we talked about yesterday, we've talked about it sparingly, but it seems to come up in a season like Advent, in a season like Lent in the new year, is that uh, we begin to wrestle with this category. God's a God of justice and God of love. Uh, God deals with people accordingly, with a a calm head and a cool heart. Uh, He judges justly. And there seems to be this pattern where God deals with his covenant people differently than He deals with those outside the covenant. Um, It's not that God plays favorites. I mean, that category comes up in the New Testament. Uh, God shows no favoritism. But in a mystery, God did pick Jacob over Esau, and God did pick Israel out of the rest of the neighboring nations. And so there is a sense where he, He marks out this covenant people, and it wasn't supposed to be fixed forever. We do know that the promise of Abraham was one family would bless all nations. And so the story, the narrative arc is always going from one people to the rest. But along the way, um, God's people act the fool. I mean, that's the scientific term <laughs> for it, I guess. And so how's God going to deal with his covenant people? God wants to keep his promises, right? So like some people talked about there's a key of David. You see that in Isaiah 22:22. 22, 22. It's repeated in the book of Revelation. And then there's also the lock of David. So on the one hand, God says that there's never going to be not a descendant of David in charge of Israel. But then, Israel, then David's family forfeits time and again. And so God has to move on beyond David. And so how do these uh, scriptures reconcile one another? And so we do see Paul working with that and through one of the golden strands of the book of Romans, where he begins to talk about in a mystery... How Israel is both set apart and is designated for this this mysterious power of sin to be dealt with once and for all. And instead of it being heaped on a whole group of people, it really is managed by one who is faithful among them in Jesus. And so, but that's way before they get to that that dawns on them in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the governing question once again is. Have we gone too far like have we really like filled up the punch card of forgiveness and god's ready to scrap israel and it's time to move on to somebody else and so i think that's at the back of why they make these prayers Um, on the one hand the psalmist says in verse six you have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us right so god uh, allowing hardship to come to israel like the logical conclusion for the neighbors of israel to say is well, this God's abandoned them, and now they're open uh, to be just ran over and smashed. Um, but then they begin to pray, Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we might be saved. And then there's a mystery unfolded here, uh, verses 17 through 19. I really believe um, that there's no way this psalmist had like this one-man m- Messiah category in mind when this was being uh, written. Um, Some Christian readers will read this into Old Testament passages, but uh, there's a stack of books here on my desk. There's one that I would highly recommend. It's written by a couple of Jewish scholars who are familiar with Christian interpretation, and they give a helpful guide to say, like, how do you read some passages with and without Jesus? And they're not trying to be disrespectful. They're just saying before Christians were able to engage and comment on the Old Testament text, there was this huge lineage of interpretation. And it's just worth considering what the first audience would have heard first before we read Christ into them, uh, before we see, you know, even Christian writers do it in the New Testament. Uh, like I'm thinking about the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm thinking of Paul in places like he does in Romans, where these scriptures from the old uh, have like new light shed on them because of the Christ event. But this book, is called The Bible With and Without Jesus by Amy Jill Levine or AJ Levine. Uh, it's co-wrote by another author, but uh, she's probably the scholar in the middle of it. And it's just worth noting that um, we want to see like Jesus being revealed again and again. And I think it's because we so want everyone who has any familiarity with the Bible to say that like, this was the story that was always going to happen. And there is a sense that th- this is what it was. I mean, you look at places like Luke chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24, uh, where Jesus, in Luke 24 in particular, he, from the law and the prophets, bears upon these two disciples on the road to to Emmaus, um, that the scriptures reveal the suffering of the Messiah and the resurrection from the dead. And all of a sudden, light bulbs begin to turn on. But I think we can, and this is something that uh, my very first Bible teacher, Steve MacArthur, way back in the day, Dr. Steve, he said, don't. See Christ and everything because there are ways in which the New Testament is clear that the Old Testament was revealing something. And there are some times that we just get a little too carried away. Like for instance, in the Battle of Jericho in the book of Joshua, you know, Rahab the prostitute, she puts a a, you know, a scarlet cord on her window, and that was gonna be the sign that she was supposed to be spared by the armies because she helped out the spies in Jericho, and people are like, Oh, when you think of you know the scarlet thread, you think of the scarlet and blood, you think of Jesus, and Jesus covers our sins anyway, the same way. That's just getting a little too inventive, right? But nevertheless, here in Psalm 80, the psalmist somehow began to put the picture together, like God's not going to abandon us. Like we do need to be, our sins need to be dealt with. And God's not going to abandon us. And I think this is probably more looking at something like the book of Judges, that when neighboring nations threaten them and smash them, that God always raised somebody up. Somebody with power, somebody with administrative skill, somebody who is winsome, somebody who can fight in battle uh, to fight back the enemies and restore God's people once again. And I think that's, a, that's what they have in mind. And so ultimately, Psalm 80 is a psalm of deep trust. Even when there's not headlines revealing that perhaps we're going to be spared, this has been our story. Things do get pretty grim. But God sends the light and that light usually surrounds a leader, a person that will emerge from our midst. And we get even further light on that as we come into the Advent season, as we learn what the people of Israel, which means to wait and to pray and to ask God to help us and to save us. We now have an answer to that. The answer once and for all is Jesus born from Israel under the law. And he redeemed those under the law and those outside the law to be God's one people. So with those things in mind, let's spend some time praying to our God this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you today that Jesus, you were always destined to be the deliverer. We thank you that before the foundations of the earth, God, you call people forth. We thank you that Jesus came as the firstborn. Uh, From among the dead, so that He might rescue all of us who were dead in sin, and so we thank You that we do have a Redeemer, that we do have a Savior, that our prayers don't eventually just vanish into the void, uh, but they're captured by a loving Father. And so this day, as the Psalmist hinted, uh, we thank You that Your hand rested upon a man on uh, with Your right hand, the Son of Man that You raised up for Yourself, and we thank You that that person at your right hand, Jesus delivered us from sin. And so we continue to pray for the world that is craving to be rescued. We think that, that even though groanings continue to ricochet throughout all the world, that ultimately those those groanings will lead to salvation and redemption. And so God, we just pray that your name would be lifted high and that you draw all people to yourself and that people uh, would be would be willing to come into the light and to be rescued and saved. So start with us. uh, Redeem those lost parts of who we are still. Bring them into the light and allow us to be restored, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.